Hi, and welcome to PwC Canada's CEO Viewpoints podcast series, where we discuss key themes from our 25th annual global CEO survey. Organizations are under pressure from shareholders, investors, and customers to move beyond just setting net zero targets. There's a growing expectation of concrete transition plans, transparent reporting, as well as increased leadership and accountability from the C-suite. In our last two episodes, we discussed why environment, social, and governance, known as ESG, has risen to the top of the CEO agenda in terms of strategy and transformation. For today, we will continue the ESG conversation in part one of a two-part episode, diving deeper this time into net zero and the importance for leaders to take bold actions to secure the future. My name is Elliot Capel, and I'll be your host for this special two-part episode. I'm a partner and the National Climate Change Leader for PwC Canada. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we have an amazing guest, Jason Stora, CEO from Aviva Canada, who will chat with us about their strategies on ESG and getting to net zero. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Elliot. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming aboard. Maybe we can just start a little bit with you just telling us about your journey as the CEO of Aviva Canada. So, I mean, I've been in Aviva for 18 years now. I've been the CEO for the last three years. But before doing this role, I did a number of roles across all parts of, of Aviva Canada. So I think I know this business well. I think I actually know the insurance industry in Canada generally quite well. Actually, when I was appointed, I was referenced as being a veteran of the Canadian insurance industry, which wasn't thrilled with being called a veteran, but that's just my own ego and denial of how old I perhaps am. But look, I, you know, doing a, a variety of different roles does mean that I know this company. I think I've seen, you know, different parts of the cycle, the insurance cycle in Canada and how we and the rest of the industry have reacted to it. And I've also seen the evolution of things like the importance of communities and how ESG is now emerged. You know, it's not that long ago that we were not talking about ESG as a business. So the fact that we are now and the fact that, you know, actually Aviva overall has taken I think such a fantastic leadership position is amazing. But yeah, I know this business well. Been in the CEO role for actually three years, almost to this week. So, you know, obviously had the first nine or 10 months as a normal CEO, I would say, albeit new in the role, and then COVID hit. So for the most part of my time as CEO, I've, uh, like everybody, been managing the world that we now live in around the last couple of years of COVID and working from home and all of the fun that that's come with. But this is a great business and I'm very fortunate to have this role. Congratulations on your third anniversary. Thank you. I want to start by asking a broad question about the insurance sector, because when we talk about climate change more broadly, um, energy, agriculture, infrastructure, other aspects of the real economy, and then large investors, pension funds, banks, even on sustainable finance, tend to take up a lot of the oxygen. In the insurance sector isn't one that I would say is often at the front, forefront of that conversation. So what, you know, what are the main, let's say, thrusts or drivers within your sector? And, and how has Aviva taken that leadership role on climate change? Yeah. So, I mean, the irony about that question is that I think the insurance industry probably sees the impact of climate change more than any industry, or certainly as much as other industries. You know, if you think back, there's a stat floating around that, you know, back in the 80s, natural catastrophe weather events cost the industry in Canada anywhere from 25 to $50 million. Over the last three years, they've cost the industry over $2 billion each year. 
So we see the impact of climate change. And if you think about weather events in the Canadian market, whether it's hurricanes in, on the northeastern seaboard that him, impact Atlantic Canada and then come into Quebec and Ontario, whether it's hurricanes and storms in the summer in Alberta, whether it's floods in BC that we saw in November, you know, in May of this year, there was a, there was a storm in mostly in Ontario, but also in Quebec that cost the industry almost a billion dollars. So that's a billion dollars of losses in the space of four to six hours. So I actually think the industry has a much better line of sight on the impact of climate change and how climate is changing around us than probably many other industries. And it certainly costs us as an industry. And I think, you know, the best claim is the one that you never have because nobody wants to have a flooded basement. Nobody wants to have a you know, a fire ripped through their home or a, or, a, or a roof leak and cause damage. So the more you can do to educate yourself and in our, in, in our industry, educate consumers around the things they can do to mitigate. And then it, when there is a claim to build their properties back better and to be in a better position, you know, going forward, there's lots of studies around, you know, the incremental costs that if the industry paid or insureds paid, after a claim, they could make their roof more resistant. They could make the siding on their house more resistant. They could protect themselves from flooded basements. And, you know, we all see the impact of something like rising water levels and increased volatility of weather events. And so I think it's very, very real for the insurance industry. And, you know, we're trying to be as clued in on that and thinking about what does that mean for people going forward. It's interesting. And the examples that you gave are really around the physical impacts of climate change, the resilience, the impact of the environment on us. And yet, you know, much of the conversation today is around decarbonization, clearly, our impact on the environment. So how have you managed to take that conversation, which is about the, the immediate impact, and, and, and use it to advance what are very ambitious climate change goals for your organization? Yeah, well, I mean, look, we you know, Aviva was the first major insurer globally to come out with a net zero target by 2040. Now, 2040 is still a ways off, but it will be upon us before we know it. And the actions that we need to take around, you know, to your point about carbonization, around decarbonizing the things that the activities that we do about working with our partners to make sure that they're using science based targets to sign up to commitments to reduce their carbon footprints, to get to net zero, hopefully in a reasonable time frame. I mean, the way we've done that is we've said, first thing we've got to do is become net zero in our own operations. Second thing we want to do is to work with partners that are committed to becoming net zero over a reasonable period of time. And the way we're trying to do that is, you know, I think like this is not an easy problem to fix and it's not an easy challenge to deal with in a short period of time. So I, the approach that Eva's taken is, is to say that we want to engage with people, not exclude them. Because this is a complex industry and, you know, that phrase, it takes a village. Well, it takes a village to make the insurance industry work well. So you've got to work with everybody in that village and certainly give everybody a chance. And so, you know, for us to make those commitments, particularly around saying, well, we will lead by example. Because I also think that we're very aware that Aviva is not going to change the world on its own. But if we set the standard, whether that's the timeline of the commitments we make or the actual actions that we take, I have a firm belief that others will follow. You know, if you think about the electric vehicle space and how that's 
emerged, I mean, I've almost exploded over the last few years. It's particularly acute at the moment because of the crisis, you know, generally that's inflation related and supply chain and, you know, the oil and gas prices, etc. But, you know, it's not that many years ago that electric vehicles, I mean, think of it, governments were offering incentives to encourage people to buy electric vehicles. Now, a number of those governments don't need to offer those incentives. And in fact, in some parts of the world, governments are talking about, you know, collecting more taxes on electric vehicles because they need to collect more tax revenue given some of the challenges they have. So how quickly that environment has changed. And I think, you know, we, we, we see the same in, in the insurance space and whether it's impact of climate on weather events and extreme weather, whether it's the future impact of biodiversity loss, you know, that's biodiversity loss is something that Aviva has really taken a keen interest in. We have a fantastic partnership with the World Wildlife Fund of Canada and actually the World Wildlife Fund globally. But, you know, you've got to pick your spots. And, and one of the things that I think we've all learned in the last couple of years is climate change is such a big, um, challenging, almost overwhelming problem that it can be very easy to just stay on the sidelines and analyze and spin but actually you've got to start somewhere. And even if you're starting with just your own operations or how you in, engage with customers or partners, that is a start and it will take you down a path that will lead to bigger and better things. Let me ask you about the, the last thing you said there specifically, I mean, about making a start. You know, you said, you know, not long ago, ESG wasn't uh, really at the forefront of the agenda and how quickly things have changed around EVs and other aspects of of the challenge. So as a leader, what was the catalyst? What pushed you to bring ESG up the agenda or climate change? There was a number of motivations. One first was personal. I have an 11 year old son who I don't know what kind of future he's facing. He loves the natural, natural world. He loves insects, animals. When I was growing up, I used to love watching David Attenborough. David Attenborough these days is leaving a very different impression of the world around us and what we're doing to it. So I think that just on a personal level, it feels like this isn't something that we can just, that I could just ignore. You know, secondly, I think it's very relevant to, you know, the business I'm in and the company I work for. Climate change impacts our customers every single day and in certain parts of the year more than others. And so we see the financial cost of, of climate change. We see the impact of weather events and claims that people have. And We've got to get ahead of this because it's only getting worse. And then I think there's lessons from COVID, right? You know, COVID, it hit the most vulnerable the hardest. You know, it, it wasn't something that you could just ignore and it would go away. And science is what got us through and is getting us through COVID with medical research. And I think you can apply any of those so what's from COVID to climate change and say, well, COVID-19 was really significant but it pales by comparison with the, the consequences potentially of climate change. So I, I look at that and I think, you know, all of those things line up. And then, you know, as I say, I work for a company whose purpose is to be with you today for a better tomorrow. And you can't deliver on that purpose if you're not thinking about tomorrow. And so you can't think about tomorrow without considering climate and the impact it's going to have on our customers. So, you know, I'm quite fortunate in that I feel like there's parts of my personal life and parts of my professional life that come together quite nicely. But even if I didn't have that holistic view of this, any one of those components would be important enough for me to think, I've got to educate myself more about this. I've got to make more of a difference and more of an impact. 
whether that's in my personal life or in the role that I have at Aviva. I find that very compelling. And I'm sure that there are many in your organization and in the industry who, who would agree with me. But, you know, what are the strategies that you use to engage people in your organization and in, in the industry more broadly? Are you speaking from personal experience? Are you, you drawing the parallels to COVID? What, what have you found to be most successful? I mean, the first thing, I think, if you can link climate or ESG more broadly to the purpose that you have as an organization, is you know, I think that's a really easy way to introduce people to this. And not every business, not every industry has that linkage. Although I think today, you know, if you say that you believe that it's important to be net zero, I think any industry can try and find a linkage to, well, are they net zero today? What do they need to do to become net zero? And why is it important? Why is it relevant for their employees and for their customers? I think fortunately for Aviva, that is easy for us to link ESG with our purpose. I think the second thing you've got to do is link it to your strategy, because if, if you're not linking it to your strategy and things that are important to you to deliver as a business, then it will fail. It will just become a strap line on a nice presentation that's been shared with the board or with investors or with your employees or with your partners. I think the other key thing is to get people engaged at a grassroots level. You know, so when we talk about becoming net zero by 2040, we've brought that to life to people, for people by telling them, well, it means this. It means we're going to have a fleet of electric vehicles. It means we're going to, our offices are going to be net zero. It means we're going to be using energy that comes from sources that are, you know, sustainable and, and all of these things. And then, you know, we've gone as far as, you know, in June, we had our first all-employee sustainability day. We had 1,100 employees who, you know, were able to help in their relative, in their respective communities, whether that was anything as simple as cleaning up litter, planting bushes and trees and local species, trying to deal with invasive species, you know, a whole number of activities that we created for employees to, to touch and feel it a little bit more because otherwise it feels removed and it feels like something that's, that's on a page. You know, we've just published about a month ago our first sustainability report, which is where we're being quite public about the targets and the metrics that we're putting out there, how we're going to judge ourselves, how we want others to judge us as well. And one of the things I'm going to be doing is sharing that with other people in the industry and in other industries to say, look, I'm sending this to you, not because I'm trying to self-promote Aviva, but because I'd actually quite like you to do better than us. You know, the only one company can only achieve so much. And I think, you know, I'm I like a good bit of healthy competition as much as the next person. So to put something out there and say, here's the bar, now who can beat it? And then force us to go back to ourselves and our teams and say, have you just seen what ABC have done? That's more aggressive than we've committed to. That's, that feels a bit more ambitious. How can we beat them? And I think that you know, collective momentum is something that we all need to build. And then I think that you know, the other thing is I'm very conscious that it's the relevance of ESG. When you talk, you know, I hear people talk about ESG and I hear people talk about taxonomy and definitions and, and it feels so far removed from what's relevant to me and what impact I can have. But when I think about the impact I can have, you know, in my own home or in the community where we have offices or with our employee base, and it could be any part of ESG. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about climate and and sustainability so far. But if I think about, you know, other parts of the ESG around, and, and I'll say this 
absolutely shamelessly in, in the fact that Aviva Canada is the first major financial services company in Canada to achieve gender equality at our leadership level. You know, so we have a 50-50 male-female split. Well, the average, I believe, for financial services in Canada is only about 30 to 35% of leaders are women. That's not good enough, right? And that's only the start of thinking about a diversity and inclusion agenda that has a lot further to go. So whether it's, you know, you, I think you can look at any part of the ESG spectrum and say, how is it relevant for me and what can I practically do about it? And then the final thing I'll say is, I do think it, there is a, there's a responsibility on people to call out when the dialogue is just too removed or when it feels too high level. Because yes, we can all educate ourselves every day, but I think we've got to get down now into practical actions that may be baby steps, but if you're not taking baby steps, you're certainly not going to be able to learn to walk and run later on. I was had the pleasure of interviewing uh, another Canadian executive who uh, shared something with me, which I'll, I'll now share with you, that when ESG feels like a checklist, that's when you lose people. Yeah. Right. What it has to be about is, are you managing your business in a way that mitigates risk and captures opportunity in the real world, in the yeah. 21st century, right? As soon as it becomes, you know, have you asked your portfolio companies about the following material issues? You know, that's when people start to really uh, glaze over a little bit. Oh, definitely. And I, I'll tell you, Elliot, in the insurance space, you know, one of the things we've seen is a lot of the dialogue in insurance, in property and casualty insurances, have been, well, well, what are you going to stop doing to make yourself more sustainable or to achieve net zero? And actually, there needs to be more dialogue around what are you going to start doing? You know, particularly in the insurance world, you know, how environmentally friendly are the claims practices that insurance companies provide? You know, we know when, when houses get damaged and you, there's a whole load of damaged material that ends up in landfills. Well, are there alternatives to that material ending up in a landfill? And are there alternatives to using toxic paint and other materials that are problematic for the environment? And, and that's just a slither of the kind of things that we can do. But, but you're right, when things are really high level, it's, it's so hard to engage at that level, I find. Well, and let me just engage with you on that. I'm going to go a little bit off script here because, you know, you talk about claims. Great example, right? Uh, and you mentioned before the concept of building back better, but I think so many of the systems and structures we have, I know the, the public system better than, than the private in the insurance space, but so many of the systems that we have are designed to build back the same, not to build back better. Are you thinking about that? How do we get past those barriers? Yeah, we are. I mean, if I think back over the last number of years, there were some really significant insurance events over the last number of years one in Fort McMurray and one in Slave Lake. And in both of those instances, now this was when the, the, the thinking, the mindset, the thought leadership around ESG and sustainability was in a very different spot. And neither of those are that many years ago. But in both of those events, we tried to work with local governments and we reached out to the media and other partners to say, look, can we just think about not just rebuilding houses where there's a high risk of fire or flood, can we think about fire breaks? Can we think about different local building requirements, perhaps? And I think, I don't want to say that that fell on deaf ears, but I think the mindset generally that the world had was a little bit differently. I really, really would like to believe that if and when those events happen now, there will be a more willing sets of ears to think differently. And 
you know, in November last year, BC had some pretty devastating floods. Now, fortunately, those floods, for the most part, happened in areas that were quite rural and where there wasn't large concentrations of people living. Now, that doesn't help if you were one of the people that lived there in the flood zones and the flood regions because you were very badly impacted. But if, those, if that flooding had happened in some of the more urban areas, you know, the cost would have been infinitely higher. And I don't just mean the financial cost, but the, the cost on people's lives and the, the amount of disruption it would have created. So, you know, we took the BC floods and we took a subset of the claims that we handled in the BC floods and very deliberately said that we would handle those claims in a far more sustainable way. So it was only a subset of those claims, but the learnings we got from that of how difficult it is to get rid of and deal with waste and, you know, demolition, construction material that has some level of toxicity to it. You can't just get rid of it in the normal course that the industry typically does and have either included. You have to think differently. You also think differently about what can you, you reuse what, rather than what are you just throwing out and getting rid of. And then think differently about the materials that you're using to build back. And as you, know, you say, to, to build back a little bit better. But, but even then, it's more expensive to replace an old roof with a roof that is more resistant to hail or to flood. It's more expensive to replace siding on a house with you know, old siding versus fire-resistant siding. So all of those things you need to take into account. But what I hope we will do, and certainly at Aviva we will do this, I hope the industry does it, is we'll take those learnings and then we'll feed those back to our customers and our partners to say, this is why, yes, your premium might be a few points more, but this is the impact it will have on you and this is the impact it will have if, in the event that you do have a claim. And then that technology around building the fire-resistant siding and the hail-resistant roof, that technology will get better and the cost of those products will go down. But part of that is the industry driving that demand so that those producers and those suppliers do, do do those things. They build more scale, they build more capability and and it becomes more prevalent and more commonplace than it is today. A lot of that resonates with me. I mean, I think in a lot of the work that I've done in resilient infrastructure and other real assets, you know, you see that on the energy side or decarbonization, right? We can use the energy savings to make performance work. Whereas on the resilient side, as you said, installing that fire resistant roof or siding or whatever, you know, improved indoor air quality, whatever resilience measure you're trying to implement, those generally are additional costs until you factor in the avoided losses. And those are very hard to monetize. So it's that delta on the physical impact side, on the cost of physical impacts, which is just uh, has, I think, still proven elusive in this country anyway. And it, it's exciting to see Aviva play a leadership role in trying to tackle some of those issues. Yeah. I mean, Elliot, you just touched on something there. And I, I don't remember the exact stat, but Canada does not stack up well globally in terms of our carbon footprint. It is terrible. And when you look at the, the, the pack of you know, where we are on the leaderboard, we're at the bottom. And I think many Canadians would be surprised and disappointed with the sort of company we're keeping on that leaderboard around you know, what we're doing and what we're not doing from a sustainability perspective. So, you know, look, I think it's great that Aviva is taking the position we are and we're trying to be a leader. I think it will be even better when many other companies as well decide, well, we can't let Aviva have this space to themselves. Let's let's also get out there and and make a difference and take our own leadership positions. But I do think it's one of those things, partly because, you know, 
Canada is such a vast country geographically that, I mean, even though I see the impact of storms in Alberta, I don't experience that living in Toronto. You know, I see the impact of floods in BC, but I wasn't living in those floods. I didn't experience that. I see the impact of bad weather and, you know, May storms in, in Ontario and Quebec a little bit. But like many things in life, it can be very easy to feel removed from the consequences and the outcomes that many people live with. So there's just a lot more to do in this space. Time flies, but I feel like there are so many interesting topics we can cover. Jason, we're going to take a break there and we're going to get right back to it in the next episode. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Please be sure to subscribe to hear part two of this conversation with Jason. We'll continue our discussion on communicating strategy, the importance of transparency, and building a concrete roadmap. I'm Elliot Capel, and I look forward to you joining us for the next CEO Viewpoints episode.